We're in an era of big data. Hospitals and GPs are generating an inordinate amount of it. And that has the potential to help everyone's health. But only if it's used properly. New research published on bmj.com this week opens up the potential for a whole other set of information about the data that the authors believe could be just as important as the data itself. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor at the BMJ, and to discuss metadata, I'm joined on the line by two of the authors, Griffin Weber and Isaac Kohani, both from the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. Griffin, hello. Hello, thank you for inviting me to speak today. And Zach, hi there. Good to talk to you. So I just want to start by reading out a line from your research paper that I think sort of sums up a lot of this. Um, And that's to say, the presence of a laboratory test order, regardless of any other test result, has a significant association with the odds of survival. Um, So if we unpack that, just ordering a test, the fact that a doctor went and and made that order, um, tells us a lot of information about how well or unwell a patient is. Um, And obvious, reading that now, it seems really obvious, but I hadn't actually thought of that before. It seemed like almost a light bulb moment. Um, I was just wondering, why did you guys come up with this? Why did you think this was something that would be interesting and potentially worth looking into? Both of us have spent many years developing computer software programs to help researchers access and analyze electronic health record data. And one of the things we've seen over time is that the data really represents two things. One is the actual patient's pathophysiology, as well as their interactions with the healthcare system. So in a laboratory test, such as white blood cell count, the patient always has a white blood cell count, but it's only recorded in the data if the patient goes to a doctor and the doctor determines that it's clinically important to order that particular test. Yes, and what we saw early in our studies was that there really was an untapped resource that if you looked at merely how often, for example, a test was repeated, this was prior to this publication, we could see just how abnormal a test was. In other words, if a test was very abnormal, the doctor would order the test earlier than otherwise. And this gave us the insight that there was this additional source of data in the context, such as the timing of the test, that was being underused in a number of tasks, such as prediction and diagnosis and stratification. And in fact, when we've received already the first feedback from the publication of the story, the initial reaction has been uh, a somewhat uh, supportive yet pessimistic uh, chorus of, you see how bad the data is? We always said how bad this data was. What can we do with this data? Where in fact, we're saying quite the opposite. We're saying, if you just treat the data as Griffin says, as reflecting only the physiology of the patient, you're going to miss out on all the other influences on the distributions of the data that are actually knowledge and wisdom of the providers over literally 
tens of thousands of such providers. And your research obviously helps um, sketch in some of that picture, but there was other people that have been looking at this. So I wonder, you've got a few more examples in your research paper. Would you be able to go through some of the types of, of information surrounding data that's been shown to be meaningful? Yes, uh, other people have looked at this topic before. Um, it's usually called the healthcare process model, where processes within the healthcare system influence the data that you see recorded in the electronic health record data. Um, some of this could be effects of the clinical setting, whether it's an emergency room or an outpatient setting, type of patient, what diseases that they have. Um, it also is dynamic and changes over time as billing practices change, as there are financial, different financial incentives, uh, different laboratory tests may be ordered at different frequencies. Um, what we did, which is slightly different than others, is we looked at this in a systematic way across every laboratory test at two large um, hospitals to see not only the influences of these healthcare processes on the ordering of these laboratory tests, but also how this varies from one test to another. Some tests are highly influenced by uh, the healthcare process effects and others, the actual the value of the test is much more uh, significant in predicting patient outcomes. So going on the um, former, one of the more, but not unusually dramatic um, examples was if you were in my age range, between 50 and 65, you had you were white and male, and you had a low white blood count at 3 o'clock in the morning, the probability of death in the next three years was greater than 50%. If you're in the same situation, same age range, same sex, same uh, ethnicity, but the low white blood count is obtained at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the probability of death is less than 3% in the next three years. And it's only because if someone is trying to draw your blood at 3 o'clock in the morning, that is not a routine blood draw. That is a blood draw done because at least one, if not more, individuals are very worried about your healthcare status and trying to help you. But that difference is treated by most artificial intelligence and predictive analyses as if they were as, as if that difference was irrelevant. But in fact, it's hugely informative of what the healthcare system and its providers are thinking of. And as you say, um, you know, a lot of that data is seen as, not seen to be as important as the, 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 the test results themselves. Um, and I wonder, you've given a few examples. Do you have a feeling about other data, um, other things in there that... Uh, we should be looking at, we might be um, recording, but not necessarily analyzing, that it would be worth looking at. In, in this study, we looked at the time of the day of a laboratory test, the day of the week, whether it's a weekend or a weekday uh, order, the, and the interval of time between consecutive tests, so how quickly did a physician repeat the same test in a patient. Um, there are other influences, such as whether or not it was done on a holiday or a non-holiday day. Um, things change during the time of the year. The types of diseases that occur in the summer are different than the winter, and ordering patterns uh, will differ. Uh, 
other studies, uh, and we've looked at this as well, have found things at the clinical setting, which uh, hospital or clinic the patient is at can have an effect in the distance that the patient is from the hospital. Uh, if the patient traveled very far to get to the clinic or is right next to the hospital, it can uh, affect which laboratory tests are ordered. So in a way, all of these are kind of proxy measures for, for the wellness of the patient, how worried they were themselves and how worried the, the doctor was about them. Um, and I wonder, would it be better just to design these systems to actually record something about that kind of data, you know, directly? So I think what you're, what you're asking, which is quite reasonable, and many have thought to do this, is why don't we just ask the doctor or the nurse or healthcare, other healthcare provider, why are you ordering this test? Please fill out the following form. Please follow, uh, fill out the following questionnaire to explain why you're ordering so that we fully understand the context and therefore we can be much more precise in its interpretation. And the fact is we've seen a n- number of essentially immovable obstacles in that regard. One is we're already asking most clinicians already too much in terms of documentation and we're taking them away from patient time and this would be seen as yet an additional and has been seen as yet an additional imposition of administrative overhead upon the uh, uh, caregiver just trying to give care. The other um, part of it is very often there's in an acute situation, for example, three o'clock in the morning, they may or there may not be enough time to explain yourself while you're trying to do uh, what it takes to take care of the patient. And third, our technology, as it currently exists, is not very user-friendly. It takes an enormous amount of time to actually provide that kind of information. It may be with advances in uh, artificial intelligence so that essentially these uh, programs can look and listen at what we are doing as clinicians and infer much more upfront what is uh, going on and why. Until that time, it seems unlikely that we can get more documentation of why uh, we're giving a test. Now, the name of this article is Biases in Electronic Health Record Due to Processes Within Healthcare Systems. Now, by saying biases, we're, we're implying that it's bad. Um, but you think there's actually an opportunity um, within this data? Yes, absolutely. It, it's, uh, the data is biased in the fact that uh, it's laboratory tests are being ordered based on uh, physicians' uh, knowledge about the patients and uh, the knowledge of the, of the healthcare system and what the laboratory tests are telling them. So uh, when a laboratory test is ordered at 3 in the morning, it's being ordered for a very different kind of reason than at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, these biases, if you're not paying attention to this, can lead to misleading results. But if you understand where the biases came from, you can actually use them to your advantage and improve the predictive models as we uh, demonstrated in the study. And what's interesting, I think, about this conclusion is, in some ways, it's a call for increased activation of clinicians in their participation in big data, artificial intelligence research, because very capable data scientists who do not understand the healthcare system, 
will make this uh, mistake again and again. We've seen this routinely. And it's only clinicians who understand what's going on in the healthcare system. What is the distinction between a three o'clock in the morning versus three o'clock in the afternoon uh, test between an outpatient test and an inpatient test? Test on a specialist versus a generalist. It's only those who are going to understand what the initial meaning of the data is that may likely be completely invisible to a well-trained but not medically savvy data scientist. Mm, and equally, um, obviously, that that sort of contextual knowledge is um, really important. But equally, um, a clinician might not know the full extent of, of the kind of metadata um, that's being collected by them. So um, I'm just wondering, you know, if, if people are thinking of designing some big data um, study based on, on secondary data, um, do you have any tips or, or, you know, where should people go to, to really make sure that contextual information is uh, included? So this may, in fact, almost certainly is self-serving, but perhaps... The, right, the first place to go is to local clinicians, researchers who happen to be biomedical informaticians. What we as biomedical informaticians as a global profession are addressing is how do we deal with the processes, processes of healthcare and the data generated by healthcare to deliver better care and to advance science. And in that process, we're learning a lot about the data that you're right. Not all clinicians will be aware of. Certainly not all data scientists will be aware of. So I think an important role that biomedical informaticians have in this kind of analysis is they serve as a bridge between data science, decision science, epidemiology, and the actual details of clinical care and uh, healthcare delivery. Yes, the, the key is to remember that these data are not just uh, random samples that are collected from the patients. There's this whole hidden component to it, which is the healthcare processes that are collecting the information. So whenever you look at the data, you also have to think about how did that, uh, that piece of information get into the database. And if you can't figure it out yourself, that's when you have to uh, talk to clinicians or other people involved with uh, a healthcare system to understand uh, why that particular type of laboratory test or diagnosis or procedure might have been ordered and performed for that kind of patient at that uh, particular time. Griffin, um, I think you in the past made a very um, incisive point about why experience with clinical trials might have perhaps blinded some individuals to the, this uh, effect that we've been studying. Yes, um, a lot of the statistical methods that have been developed have been for randomized clinical trials where data is collected in a very systematic way, information is validated, uh, the data is collected on a scheduled basis where patient might come in every month to get every laboratory test collected. It's very different than observational health data where uh, patients are coming in at random times when they're, when they're sick or when they have an appointment and only a subset of the tests are ordered based on clinical need. So the same methods that are used to analyze clinical trial data have to be changed when you're dealing with observational health data because the level of control that's put on top of a clinical trial isn't present. Hmm. And I suppose, um, you know, in a world of big data, 
machine learning is is increasingly important, and um, it will be important for for people who are training machines to to think about this this other layer of data as well. Then, yes, one one thing that big data analysts need to consider is all the healthcare processes that influence electronic health record data. But more than that, uh, as we've shown in some previous uh, work that we've done, that healthcare information exists in many different places, not only in electronic health record data and data that's collected by um, insurance companies and providers, but other information. The credit cards that patients have include the types of uh, uh, um, fitness centers that they sign up with. People blog or tweet about their healthcare all the time. there's climate data, environmental information about where patients live. All this information provides a bigger context about what's going on with the patient and their illness and why they're um, seeking care at, uh, by, from physicians who are going to hospitals. And I, I would like to add, because this was not the focus of our paper, but I'd like to make a comment about it nonetheless, is that historically, most of the data about patients was controlled by healthcare systems, by the doctors and the administrators of, that, of those systems. Increasingly, this data, these data are spread across a variety of sources, some of which are not considered and are not conventional sources of healthcare data. In that vein, I think patient autonomy and patient uh, control is going to become paramount. Otherwise, I think quite reasonably, many of us will will have the same worries about the use of our healthcare data as we have perhaps for some other uh, perhaps exploitation of our data sets. And so as we approach this era of a more contextualized view of our health status beyond the healthcare systems, I think the issues of patient control of who can see that data and when, and accountability will have to become much more explicit. I think we're just beginning to understand how the data thrown off during the course of healthcare can actually inform us to make better decision-making. And I hope that uh, our publication gives inspiration to others to see how the other ways that these data can be used to really advance the state of clinical care. You've been listening to Griffin Webber and Isaac Harney discuss their paper, Biases in Electronic Health Record Data Due to Processes Within the Healthcare System, a retrospective observational study. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back soon, finding out what forced migration can tell us about patterns of diabetes. Subscribe so you don't miss out on that. We're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find our full back catalogue at bmj.com slash podcast. Hundreds of episodes, all available for free. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.